This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. It's not just fuel. It's not just something you order off an app. It's not something that is measured by how much money you're willing to spend on it. It's something that you engage in with other people together and the sum is greater than the parts. Because we live in a time where I think there's this unprecedented enthusiasm in food. Growing up, nobody took pictures of their lunch, right? Like people care about food a lot, but I want to see it, that care reflected in their participation in it, their engagement in it, and their, uh, you know, like it's a source of interest and meaning and motivation. That's Len Senator, the founder of The Depanor. It's a unique venue space that hosts food vents in the GTA. The Dep, as it's known to local Torontonians, is a quaint, restaurant-style venue space where creators and consumers can connect and explore new foods. The Dep hosts cooking classes, guest speakers, drop-in dinners, private events, the Supper Club, and in 2016, Len created the Newcomer Kitchen, where Syrian newcomer women prepare traditional foods for pickup or delivery. Well, I think it's time to get to Len. He can explain this a lot and talk all things the Depreneur much better than I can. Welcome, Len. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's great. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about you. What sparked your passion for food? Well, I, I, um, like, I feel like I've always kind of gone through life stomach first. It's always been something that uh, I've been, found incredibly interesting. i uh, fascinated when I've traveled. It's always been the food that really stuck out, I think, a lot of the really most meaningful experiences I've had are connected to food in one way or another. What's the first recipe you can remember trying? Um, I guess one of my earliest food memories would be um, making uh, I, I scrambled eggs mm-hmm. with um, with a, like a cheese slice, sort of torn up and mixed in it in, in, into the uh, into the scrambled eggs, and that was my my little sort of culinary discovery that you could make this sort of you know, gooey cheese mm-hmm. omelet thing. I think I maybe wanted to add some garnish, so I sprinkled whatever green thing was in the spice rack. I don't know that I would made much of a distinction between parsley or dill or oregano at that time, but would would put something on it. And uh, yeah, I actually remember cooking that and being proud of having come up with this particular dish. That was, uh, you know, I'd probably still eat it too. <laughs> if I had access to cheese slices, uh, if I found some in my fridge, I'd probably eat it. Yeah. So true. How did you get started in the kitchen? I was looking for a transition out of some of the work I was doing before. Uh, I had this notion that I wanted to do something involving food, but the idea of like frantically cooking the same thing every day for a bunch of people I never meet didn't feel like the way I wanted to do it. And so you know, I was thinking about this and I was also becoming fascinated by the phenomenon of pop-up dining, which seemed to be taking, you know, picking up steam in many different cities around the world. But it really didn't seem to be happening much in Toronto. And I was trying to figure out why that was. And I got the sense that the cost of uh, setting up the infrastructure to do a one-off event was so prohibitive that uh, very few people uh, had enough money to set it all up, and then the resulting events had to be really expensive, and then so even you know only people with lots of money could go to them, and it was really limited in its scope. And so I had the idea of creating a venue that was uh, fully dedicated to hosting pop-up events, and that had everything you needed, so you didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And this would allow us to kind of lower the barrier 
to entry and make it a lot easier for a much greater diversity of people to come in and you know participate as cooks and then the resulting events could be much cheaper and we could have a much greater and interesting diversity of people who could participate as diners and that was the idea that i kind of uh was at the heart of the depth and i've been running with for the last eight years or so so if you had to describe your cooking style what would that be um i don't think i have a very distinct personal style i am a very much an improvisational and opportunist uh cook i basically cook with whatever's there uh and then draw on you know the different places that I've traveled and the different foods that I've eaten for the kind of things that interest me and what I've learned uh, about cooking and cuisine and the underlying mechanics of uh, flavor from all the different events that I've hosted and the different life experiences that I have. So I'm not typically one who follows uh, a lot of rest. I mean, I'll like, I like to read cookbooks mm-hmm. because I'm interested in the food and the history and the culture and the, and the, the, the thoughts behind it, but I rarely follow recipes when cooking you know i I certainly like home cooking Mm -hmm. better than fine fine dining which is a big part part of the depaneur i can only get to so many people's homes so i kind of tricked them and had them all come to me instead (laughs) that's brilliant where does your inspiration for cooking come from it's a it's a reflection of my interest in culture my interest in travel you know I, i love you know discovering and learning about the ingredients i i love understanding how cuisine sort of have come to be like why do those flavors exist in that particular place what's how does what's its connection to the terroir to the ingredients to the culture to the history and Mm -hmm. those little lessons you kind of like give you a little bit of the logic uh behind particular cuisines and then you can carry that in when you are trying to improvise in a particular direction do you ever find yourself combining two different types of cuisines i do it all the time Uh, yeah i mean i i inevitably combining essentially Canadian, you know, cuisine, be it what it is, with whatever it is that I might be cooking. I mean, Canada um, being such a young country and having so little, if any, of its own distinct culinary history or tradition um, has a lot of freedom to kind of mix anything with anything. Um, One of the things I've observed is in a lot of other places in the world, like there are very, very specific ways that things have to be made. I mean, if you come from this particular town, it's this particular shape of pasta with this particular kind of sauce, or you put your, you know, you, you use this spice, but not that spice. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it's done. And it's done for a reason. And that's what it means to come from that particular place. Here, you know, we have a very cavalier attitude towards things. Oh, we we don't have that vegetable. It's okay. We'll just substitute this vegetable. We don't have the shape pass on no problem. We'll just use whatever we have on the shelf. And we don't, we're not closely tied to those things. They don't mean a lot to us. We're happy to substitute anything for anything. But you but you don't see that in places that have really deeply rooted uh, culinary traditions. I like to play a couple of games. Are you up for it? Sure. So the first one's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can go with this or you can go with that. Pizza or pasta? It is a tough one. And it depends so much because there's great pizza and there's, you know, terrible pasta and there's terrible pizza and fabulous <laughs> pasta. So it does depend. But I would just say as a general pasta being so fabulously versatile mm-hmm. and noodles being uh, appearing in so many different cultures, uh, I, I would be, I wouldn't want to give up my noodles. I'm a big fan. Uh, pancakes or waffles? Um, I eat a lot, probably more pancakes than I eat waffles, but, uh, I think I kind of like a great waffle is 
transcendent. Mm-hmm. Like it's a really special, amazing thing. Doesn't happen that often, but I'll take a great waffle pretty much over a lot of things. I have yet to find that great waffle. Yeah. They're they're rare, but they're they're pretty good. <laughs> like a lot a, of butter. It's like involved. a unicorn. It's there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um corner peas. I think uh corn, especially like summer sweet corn. That's another pretty delicious thing that you can't yeah, can't miss out. Carnivore or veggie? I like meat. I, mm-hmm. I really do. I just, I just, just don't necessarily feel like you got, got to eat a whole lot of it. Every once in a while, there'll be like, you know, whether it be barbecue or something like, you know. But you know, as a general rule, I'm probably, I'm guessing maybe around eighty percent vegetarian at this point. This is really important. Toothpaste squeezed from the middle or the bottom? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. I probably squeeze from the middle and then retroactively go from the bottom and sort of make up for it. Okay, you've redeemed yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier, we mentioned your restaurant and venue space, the Depanor. I'm curious to know, where did the name come from? Well, a Depanor is what you call a, a corner store anywhere in French Canada. So I was born in Montreal. I grew up here in Toronto, but I moved back and lived in Montreal for more than 10 years. And it was very, you know, uh, there's a lot that I really love and miss about the kind of um, spontaneous uh, joie de vivre that that animated Montreal uh, in my twenties, and you know the experiences that I had there. So you know, I've always the Dep is a little bit my uh, nostalgic love letter to things that I miss about Montreal. So yeah, the local corner stores, all the local corner stores in Montreal are called a Depener. This the Dep. It's uh, you would be running out to the Dep, and so the venue that I have on the corner of. Uh, Russian Park Crescent in college used to be a corner store. It was a corner store, pretty terrible one, mm-hmm. uh, sort of an inconvenience store at the time. Um, when I when I uh, saw the sign in the window that they were selling, and, and you know it had bars on the windows and chains on the doors and single cigarettes and expired clamato and it was not a nice uh, place. <laughs> and so you know, but you know that was the the, the the rent was really cheap, and so that became the place where I was going to like do this sort of community and food experiment Mm -hmm. and uh being a you know now i was a montrealer an ex-montrealer with a corner store so calling it the depener seemed kind of like an obvious thing but i also really liked the original meaning of the word so in uh in french if you are um for example if you're driving down the street and your car breaks down uh you might say uh, just beyond ben meaning i'm stuck i'm in trouble i'm in a jam i'm in a difficult situation so the depener is someone who gets you unstuck or out of trouble. It's like a problem solver or a troubleshooter who helps you when you're in a tight spot. And so I guess, like in France, a depreneur would still be like roadside assistance or a tow truck driver or mechanic. But in Quebec, I guess it was like, oh, it's 10.30. I really need beer and cigarettes and May West. Like, who's going to get me out of this crisis? Oh, you know, the depreneur saves the day. So they became, you know, the person who helps you out. And so, yeah, I was a Montrealer with a corner store. But mm-hmm. I also believed that felt like food in Toronto was a little bit en ben, and maybe I could dip any a little bit. Oh, that's fantastic. And so fitting for what you do. I mean, like I mentioned, you have cooking classes, uh, table talks. Could we talk a little bit about some of the um, things that you offer at the Depanor? Sure. So, I mean, essentially, we're a venue that uh, curates and hosts many, many different kinds of pop-up food events, probably on the order of about 300 different events a year. Uh, we invite guest cooks, both amateur and professional, to do many different kinds of things. The, the tagline is, it's a place where interesting food things happen. And and that's what we try to do. So we invite uh, guest cooks to um, 
to do different formats. So we do hands-on cooking classes and workshops where a cook will come in and share their knowledge and passion and expertise in a particular area. We do drop-in dinners on Thursdays. The drop-in dinners are kind of like an open mic night for culinary talent. So anybody who loves to cook, professional or amateur, they can sign up, come in, make their favorite food. And then we open the doors from six to nine. Anyone can drop in and get a plate of whatever we happen to be making that day um, for eat in, for takeout. You know, it's pretty casual. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the weekends, we host our supper club. Supper club is a little more formal. We invite the chef or the cook to do a multi-course dinner. We push out all of our tables and everybody eats together in one big BYOB family style dinner party where things are on platters and people share the food and everyone eats together. We've also been home to like uh, many great brunch uh, residencies. So we invite uh, someone to come in and develop a brunch concept and then run with it for a year or two. So we have a great, a great one on the go right now, sort of an Eastern Mediterranean Levantine inspired brunch run by two very talented young women. And then we also rent out the venue for people who need a place to host their own food events, whether it's like a birthday party or an office gathering or whatever they can, there's it, not a lot of places that include the full kitchen. So you can cook yourself or you can cook together with your friends or you can work with a chef or caterer of your choice. Mm-hmm. Or I'm happy to connect them with any of the hundreds of cooks that have, you know, done stuff at the depth before and put them together so that they can cater whatever type of food they might be after. So we do all of these different kinds of things that uh, try to connect people with food in a very open and transparent way. We host a monthly um, table talk. It's sort of an informal culinary salon. We invite a guest speaker to come and talk on some subject in the world of food that's exciting to them. And Mm -hmm. that's the time when I cook. So I'll cook once a month. I make a meal that's inspired by the subject of the talk. And so I'll make something each month that's, you know, completely different, inspired by whatever the person happens to be talking about. Uh, And then I also try to do a vegan and gluten-free version of whatever it is that I decide to make. So I keep myself uh, challenged. But it can be really diverse. Like it's been from like, you know, uh, medieval Spain to, you know, uh, Elizabethan England to like dystopian futures. Right. You know, we really, you know, it's always a, a new topic and a new, uh, a new challenge. And that, that's what kind of keeps it fun and interesting for me. So if someone like myself, I wanted to host um, pop-up dinner. What would I have to do? What's required of me? You basically say, hey, I'd like to come and cook at the depot. I'd be like, okay, well, let's look at what date is available in the calendar. It's very self-selecting. Like, I don't force people to audition or anything. It's mm-hmm. basically like, if you're a really terrible cook, this would be the last thing in the world you'd want to do. This exactly. Is like your, your worst anxiety nightmare. You know, this is a, you know, basically, if you're the kind of person who's interested and enthusiastic and wants to cook for a small crowd, then uh, I'm, you know, kind of come in and let you do what you do. Uh, you would have essentially uh, two options. You could come and be a cook for one of the depeneurs' events, one of our drop-ins or one of our supper clubs, in which case we would sell the tickets or promote the event or host the event, and you would be the featured cook. Or you would simply rent the venue uh, to have a place where you could host a food event of your own. And then it would be private for you, and you could invite uh, whoever you wanted. So those options would be available to you. Uh, it's also an entrepreneurial opportunity. So like if you're coming to cook at one of our supper clubs, uh, I, I put it online, I sell the tickets, I promote it. Uh, and then I actually pay the cook $25 per person for the, which they can then divide between their pocket and their ingredients, however they want. So it's like at the end of a Saturday night, it's 600 bucks plus half the tips to the goes to the chef. So a lot of people, you know, get to, so it makes it a, a good little 
it's like having a really nice big dinner party, except all your ingredients are paid for and you have uh, some beer money at the end of the night too. And what the Depanur supplies is the kitchen, the space. Do we have to bring uh, cooking utensils or anything? Or that's no, all there? It's totally all supplied. We, we, pretty, we pretty, unless you need something like very specific or esoteric, mm-hmm. we pretty much have everything you need to host a food event up to maybe about 30 people. So you just need to bring your ingredients. Oh, that's great. And especially if you enjoy cooking for large groups and it's yeah. just, you just love cooking. It's a great way to showcase that. Yeah, it's a mix. So we have people who are just like enthusiastic cooks and foodies who who love it, but don't really have any interest in working in the industry, mm-hmm. but have skills. Or right? We have fledgling professionals, like people just out of school or who are studying, who have skills and ambition and want some practice and want to some exposure, want to get out there and you know try some things out, challenge themselves. And then we also have some like really established, like veteran professional chefs who come in sometimes because they don't get to cook the food they really love in their job. Like, you know, you work at a fancy French restaurant, but you really want to be making, you know, Sichuan, like you're kind of out of luck. So they get total creative freedom to come and do the food that's interesting to them. And I believe if it's fun and interesting for the chef, then it's going to be more fun and interesting for the diners too. Mm-hmm. Or make a dish like with tripe. <laughs> sure. You know, you know, we've done all kinds of, we did a, a dinner that was like, a recreation of the last meal served on the Titanic, or we did a, a, de- a meal that was oh, like cool. only had black and white ingredients and a black and white dress code. Or mm-hmm. we did one that was like a Scottish Haitian fusion dinner called Voodoo Haggis. You know, like you can't maybe build a restaurant on that, but for one night, you know, you can have a lot of fun and be creative and the stakes are low. So you can take risks that you wouldn't necessarily be able to take in the, in the regular uh, sort of commercial food space. I'm Mary Mamaliti, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Len Senator of The Depreneur, whom I call an entrepreneurial inspiration. The Depreneur is home to a really interesting outreach program called Newcomer Kitchen. And I'd love to hear a lot more about this. Okay. Well, I mean, so at the heart of all the different things that the Depaneur does was this idea that I thought it was possible to have more interesting, more memorable, more meaningful food experiences. And that they didn't have to be fancy to be great. And that idea led me to this peculiar kind of restaurant that invites total strangers to do all the cooking. And so with keeping that in mind, when we first heard of the Syrian refugee families arriving in Toronto, many of them were stuck in hotels for months where they had no kitchens, no way to prepare any food for themselves or their families. So it wasn't that much of a stretch for the Dep to just, you know, extend the invitation to use our kitchen, make some familiar food, share a meal, bring some leftovers home for your friends. And that's all it, that's all it was. And so, and that first group of ladies, they came down, they had fun, they made all this fabulous food. So we did it again. And we did it again after that. And from that small gesture of hospitality has emerged this remarkable project. Once they were relocated into their own homes, the focus sort of shifted and started to you know, work on creating social and economic opportunities for these talented women who don't necessarily have access to many other uh, kinds of opportunities like this, that are a way to participate, to do what they're really good at, to showcase their skills, to make a little bit of money on their own to, you know, to be validated and seen and heard and to participate in, in part in, in, in authoring a really positive narrative about their role in, in their new home. And so it's grown to now include over 80 Syrian families in the GTA. Every Wednesday, uh, a group of six or seven ladies will come to the Depener and they prepare 50 meals of traditional Syrian home cooking. 
uh, we sell those meals on our website for pickup. And Foodora sponsors uh, free delivery in the neighborhood and flat rate delivery across the city. And all the revenue that's generated pays for the ingredients and the packaging and the costs and so on and so forth. And then it's distributed among the ladies who cook. Um, this project, along with some special event catering that we've been trying to develop alongside with uh, some of the women, mm-hmm. has combined put about $150,000 directly into the pockets of the families since it began, which is pretty great. That's wonderful. And, but we really, I really believe that this idea, and, and I should also point out that this wasn't done alone. Like there, you know, we had I had a co-founder, Kara Benjamin Pace, who's instrumental in putting this whole uh, uh, idea together. There was a young Syrian family. Uh, uh, a young Syrian couple, Hafal Akbani and Ismail Abu Fakr, who were themselves living in the hotels, and they acted as our liaison coordinators. And, and you know, and there was a large community of supporters who all came together and supported the, the the sort of birth and creation of this project. And you know, it's with their you know incredible hard work and effort that we've been able to take the project this far. So now we've incorporated the Newcomer Kitchen as a separate nonprofit organization. And the goal is to secure funding so that we can package up this idea and put it out in the world so that it could work with any newcomer community in any kitchen that's willing to open its doors uh, in any city in the world. So all the menus are posted in advance. There's pictures and menus and descriptions. And I, you know, where possible, I'll dig in and figure out background on the particular dish, where it comes from, uh, whose recipe it is, a bit of a history to kind of put a little context for that particular dish. And it's fabulous. I mean, the food, the Syrian food is absolutely fabulous. I mean, it's uh, it's ironic because uh, we, although we have a lot of Middle Eastern restaurants in uh, Toronto, we don't have, uh, until extremely recently, any restaurants specializing on the regional cuisine of Syria, which is it's sort of like saying, oh, well, we should go to that uh, European restaurant. I hear they have really good food. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. incredibly diverse uh, culture. It's incredibly diverse cuisine. It's incredibly uh, local and regional and rooted in the terroirs of the different uh, parts of the country. And in the Middle East, in the Levant, the Eastern Middle East, um, Syria in general and uh, Aleppo and Damascus in particular are really kind of the equivalent to what sort of France, Paris, and Lyon might be in, in Europe. Like it's widely considered to be the sort of pinnacle of that historical culinary tradition. It sounds wonderful. Now I can say I've never had a traditional Syrian meal. Can you mm-hmm. describe what that would look like? Well, I mean, you know, you probably have in the sense that the Levantine cuisine is uh, is the ones that you would typically familiar, be familiar with. So you have your, you know, your uh, uh, tabbouleh salad and your hummus and your falafels mm-hmm. and your um, you know, uh, kebabs and that kind of stuff. But that's, you know, that's shared throughout the entire region and very sort of complex. And each place has their Yay. own variation on doing it. So like you've had a falafel, but a Syrian falafel is it has a slightly different shape. It has a it sort of has a hole in the middle and it's sprinkled with sesame seeds on one side and has its own unique, uh, you know, combination of spices. Really? Um, yeah. And so uh, another thing is that uh, there's a really robust uh, historical um, restaurant tradition in Syria, very sophisticated, but it's almost entirely run by men. And, you know, oh. so there's a big there's a big distance between the sort of restaurant or the fine dining world and the home cooking, which is entirely done by women. And it's like, you know, and you see that in a lot of restaurant cuisines. I mean, you know, what you eat in a Japanese restaurant is not what you would eat in a Japanese home. 
for the most part. So, you know, one of the things that is exciting to me about a newcomer kitchen is it really focuses on the home Syrian home cooking, which is often different than um, what you might find in the restaurant uh, scene there or here. Um, you know, uh, because it's made by different people for different reasons and with different priorities. And, uh, and so that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, there are some dishes that would be familiar, like the ones I mentioned for two sure, uh, which is like a salad with crispy pita croutons or, uh, tabbouleh, which would be a, a parsley and bulgur salad or, you know, hummus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that those are dishes that it might be, but they also have things that I've never seen or tried before getting into this project. And some of them are even interestingly like hyper local. So like we had one lady came in, she explained that she wanted to make this particular dish, Arragaga. She said, Oh, it's very famous. And we always make it when there's a big party or a wedding. And it's the most famous thing in my family and everybody used to make. And then there was another lady who's like, I live 200 kilometers where I've never even heard of this dish. Right. Really? So, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and so we had a fun conversation there. She's like, I like coming to the Newcomer Kitchen because I get to learn recipes, Syrian recipes that I don't know. I feel like I get to learn more about being Syrian. Actually, you know what? That is true because when I think of when I went to Italy, um, different towns had different meals or prepared the same meal but differently. Well, I mean, and and not only that, they'll call the same ingredient two different names or they'll call – they have the same name for two different ingredients. So there's actually Mm -hmm, a lot of complexity. And then let's not even get into the fact that every single lady has the only right way to make <laughs> every single dish. So, you know, this is, this is fun and interesting, but it's also sort of there's a certain amount of diplomacy that's involved. It takes mm. challenge. It's a lot of, it's more time consuming to figure out. You also don't use recipes. Nobody's using a recipe. So you have to figure out what everything is. You know, they're like, oh, we want to make, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, sounds great. Let's make it. What do you need? They're like, we need the bulgur. I'm like, okay, great. What kind of bulgur do you want? They're like the soft one. I'm like, oh, that's uh, hilarious. Yep. Okay, it, yep. well, which one's the soft one? I'm like the Turkish kind. I'm like, okay, I still don't. How much do you need? A bag. Yeah. All right, and then you multiply that by every ingredient and every you know, and it becomes uh, you know, it's a it's a whole different set of challenges than you might find in a restaurant kitchen. So. Um, but the result is remarkable food. Yeah, well, they know the recipe so well, I'm guessing, that they don't even need measuring cups. It's just the eyeball. Oh, it. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, but the, 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 the extent is, is astonishing. Like you'll say, oh, we have a big event. We need to make uh, 300 of these, of whatever it is. And, you know, one of the ladies, the older ladies, will just pick up a giant bag of flour, pour it into a bus pan, and <laughs> start, start cooking. And you're like, okay, how much is that? She's like enough, yeah. and you know, and <laughs> damn it, if it isn't exactly like when they're done, we've made like three hundred and three of exactly those things. It's but perfect. no one has any idea how, I know. how much, which makes it incredibly hard to shop for or cost or you know provision uh, in a in a commercial setting, right? But uh, you know, as a testament to their incredible skill, you know, it's it's been a huge challenge for us because it isn't a, a fixed thing. Right, it, it varies uh, a lot, uh, and I mean, I guess the format of the dep and the format of the kitchen gives us a certain amount of freedom that it can be a little different each week, depending on which lady it's is cooking. leading the recipe. You know, and that we're not ex- we're not held to the standard of a restaurant that wants to have that exactly consistent result every single time. So, you know, it works well with what we're trying to do. Well, I like to ask all my guests, 
if they have um, a recipe that you'd like to share? Well, there's lots of recipes um, that come to mind. I mean, a, rather than a specific recipe, I could uh, give you some some things that I've learned from the Newcomer Kitchen that you might be able to apply uh, in your own kitchen. Mm-hmm. So one uh, one thing is some r- really great and versatile ingredients uh, are uh, pomegranate molasses. Gosh, that sounds good. Yeah, so it's basically pomegranate juice that's boiled down into a, a thick, tart, sweet syrup, right? And if somewhere, uh, you know, it's, it's, it would, to my mind, it would be like the balsamic vinegar of the Middle East, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's a popular uh, ingredient. It's used in a lot of salad dressings and as a condiment. And, uh, um, you know, versatile. It's a, it's a nice thing to have. Nice thing to add to your pantry. Lasts forever, you know. Um, sumac is another uh, ingredient. It's made from the same sumac berries that uh, grow here in in, uh, in Canada, but it's a ground up uh, into a sort of dark red powder and adds a wonderful bright lemony tang to whatever you sprinkle it on. Now, I've just been introduced to sumac. And yeah. the question that I have is, do you use it while you're cooking or is it after as a seasoning? I think it can be both. Okay. Uh, I think you can, uh, like, so they, they'll, they'll do certain dishes like, they'll do like a kibbe sumakia, which mm-hmm. means like it's a kibbe. You, you Maybe you've had, it's a little sort of football shaped bulgur wheat sort of fried dumpling stuff often oh, yes. stuffed with yeah so yeah. they'll make apparently like in damascus there's about 25 or 30 types of kibbe just in one city right so just because you've i mean you have kibbe's to say oh like I've, oh i've had pasta no it's like a lot more complicated right. so w- one of the popular types of kibbe's it would be kibbe that's then cooked in a sumac sauce so the sauce is infused with sumac and has eggplant and chunks of lamb and stuff and you know and then the kibbe in it so uh, it's used you know as the basis of these sort of sour sauces but it's also used like for example sprinkled on salads um to give it the mo- give them a lemony tang and it also makes a very attractive uh garnish on anything that could use a tang so like if you have a hummus or a baba ganoush uh and you want to garnish it it's a very because of the beautiful red color it's a nice thing you can sprinkle on and makes it a bit lemony mm-hmm. most people might be familiar with baba ganoush Right, as it being an eggplant and tahini dip, right? And there's lots of variations. Uh, the Syrian version of it is probably the best one I've ever had. So they tend to, um, I mean, they use again like a very smoky eggplant as the base. You can roast your eggplants until the skin is black and then peel them in to get that smokiness in them. A little secret you can actually buy what they call grilled eggplants as a Turkish product in a can. And they're very smoky and very delicious. And it turns baba ganoush from a kind of a bit of a production to make into like something you can put together in a few minutes. Oh, so brilliant. In, in a, so in a Middle Eastern uh, store, if you find a can of grilled eggplant that's you know, unseasoned, it's a great starting point for this. They would use typically a combination of tahini and yogurt to give it a richness but lightness and a bit of a tang. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's olive oil and garlic. And then it's garnished with uh, pomegranate molasses, walnuts that have been sort of fried in butter, pomegranate seeds, and parsley. And the combination of the sweet and the sour and the tangy and the nutty and the smoky and the garlicky is just so much more than some of its parts. It's beautiful to look at, incredibly delicious to eat. And um, if you buy it in the can, really fast to put together. Oh my gosh, that sounds unbelievable. All right, we're going to do a rapid fire. What is your junk food kryptonite? Probably Coca-Cola. Favorite ingredient to cook with? There's not a lot of things that can't be proved by putting a fried egg on it. Do you have a favorite chef and who is it? 
Um, tough to say. I think uh, it might be Greg Couliard. Like, man is uh, just a real genius. He, he probably single-handedly did more to transform Toronto's culinary scene in the uh, in the eighties than any other person. And I think the whole really dynamic and international culinary scene of Toronto owes him a huge debt. And mm-hmm. I've had the honor and privilege of having him at the Dippiner, uh over the last couple of years. And every single time, it's an it's an education. Oh, nice. Ingredient you're most afraid of? You know what? Um, I don't, again, because I don't cook a lot of meat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm intimidated by recipes that involve like cooking a great big piece of meat. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you give me like, if you gave me like a $150 prime rib, you know, thing, like I would be like, I don't think I'm the person to be cooking this. So Fair enough. Name five foods you always keep in your fridge at all times. It's not going to be that exciting, but it's going to be, there'll be like uh, eggs, cheese, milk, um, bread. And I actually don't keep that in the, I'll keep it in the freezer, but, um, and juice, I guess those would be like, if I've got that, I'm like, I can have my good breakfast and everything, figure the rest out. <laughs> You're good to go. Yeah. But there's also like, it's like a whole condiment graveyard in there. So like there's, <laughs> you know, condiments come from all over the world to die in the corner of my fridge. So, yeah. <laughs> and last one. Justin Timberlake brought sexy back. What would you bring back? Ooh, he did? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I think like a, like a direct participation in food. It's not just fuel. It's not just something you order off an app. It's not something that is measured by how much money you're willing to spend on it. It's something that you engage in, you know, yourself and with other people together. And the sum is greater than the parts. And so, you know, you know, know, it's not just what's on your plate. It's not just what goes in your mouth. And I'd like to see people's, because we live in a time where I think there's this unprecedented enthusiasm in food. I mean, growing up, nobody took pictures of their lunch, right? Like people are, care about food a lot, but I want to see it, you know, that care reflected in their participation in, in it, their engagement in it, and their, uh, you know, like as a source of interest and meaning and motivation uh, for them. I want it to be more participatory and less commodified. And the last question I like to ask all my guests is, can you share a kitchen confession with me? Um, well, geez, uh, well, I guess I'm just trying to think of, uh, um, well, I'll tell you one like one story that that comes to mind was like that you know we rent out for a lot of private events mm-hmm. you know and uh, we had rented out for one and sometimes like and I kind of lose track on the details of who's coming for which day on what you know it gets like you know kind of a blur and these people are you know so we had this event coming up and they start you know setting up the room and they're decorating it really nicely and I'm like oh this is really nice and then I realized oh yeah there's just going to be like with some sort of wedding related thing. I thought they were going to have like a rehearsal dinner where the family was kind of getting together. And then like they're decorating and then I'm realizing, wait a minute. Oh no, they're actually going to get married oh. at the death. <laughs> they're, they're actually having the wedding here. I'm like, damn, I, I, I should have worn a nicer t-shirt. <laughs> so that was a little bit. They were, you know, it, was all, it, all, it all, all went, uh, it all went uh, swimmingly. It was a very lovely event, but uh, it was, you know, one of those little things where, again, I could probably have been a little better prepared. Oh, it happens. It happens to everyone. If our listeners want to reach out for more info from you to find out what they can, how they can get involved, anything, what can they do? 
Well, uh, the, if you're interested in the Depener and a Newcomer Kitchen, all the information is on the website. So it's everything's at thedepener.ca. The Newcomer Kitchen has its own uh, area at newcomerkitchen.ca if you want to be involved in that specifically. Uh, they both have email newsletters that we send out to pe pe people up to date on all the new events that are sort of being posted on a weekly basis. And um, it's all on Facebook as well. So we have... Uh, active pages and communities for both the Depener and Cover Kitchen online and we're on Instagram and Twitter as well. So there's lots of ways to reach out and follow. If you were interested, I mean, the, and ultimately the best way to support either or the projects are simply by participating, by attending. So if you want to come and come to the Dep and have dinner, take a class or join us for dinner, you know, come by. And if you're interested in the Newcomer Kitchen and supporting the, the opportunity, then, you know, have, come in and buy one of the meals either have it delivered or come by and pick it up. Thank you so much. I've had such a good time and learned so much talking with you. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been, it's been, it's been a really fun chat. It's that time we've reached the end of another show. Be sure to visit kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. I'd like to thank producer and editor Matt Agnew and I'm Mary Mamaliti. See you at the next episode.